0: Ezekiel 40. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six cubits long, long uh, each of which was a cubit and a hand breath. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Then he went to the gate facing east. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was one rod deep. The alcoves... For the guards were one rod long and one rod wide and the projecting walls between the alcoves were five cubits thick and the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one, one rod deep. Then he measured the portico of the gateway. It was eight cubits deep and its jams were two cubits thick. The portico of the gateway faced the temple. Inside the east gate were three alcoves on each side. The three had some uh, had the same measurements, and the faces of the projecting walls on each side had the same measurements. Then he measured the width of the entrance to the gateway. It was 10 cubits, and its length was 13 cubits. In front of each alcove was a wall one cubit high, and the alcoves were six cubits square. Are you still with me? Yes. Good. Then he measured the gateway from the top of the rear wall to one alcove to the top of the opposite one. The distance was 25 cubits uh, from one parapet opening to the opposite one. He measured along the faces of the projecting walls all around the inside of the gateway 60 cubits. The measurement was up to the portico facing the courtyard. The distance from the entrance of the gateway To the far end of its portico was 50 cubits. The alcoves and the projecting walls inside the gateway were surmounted by narrow parapet openings all around, as was the portico. The openings all around faced inward. The faces of the projecting walls were decorated with palm trees. God's word. I didn't pick this because it said trees at the end, but that's just a bonus. So, we live in a generation uh, that, and I've mentioned this before in sermons, uh, that is easily distracted and easily bored. Uh, the Bible was not written for our entertainment or to amuse us. I mean, hopefully, we are interested in, in reading God's Word. And, uh, Sometimes, quite frankly, we read God's word and it can feel a little boring, kind of like this passage. Uh, When I was done reading, I don't think anybody thought, oh, how meaningful and life-changing for my week ahead. Uh, Now, I think that everybody, well, I should say all Christians, should have a a Bible reading plan. Like, here's, here's what I'm going to do each day in Bible reading. Maybe follow a devotional book. Uh, Maybe a a certain plan. Maybe it's reading the Bible in a year, reading the Bible in two years, or whatever. We should all have a Bible reading plan. Um, In high school, um, I was I was very diligent about reading God's Word every day, and I remember in high school I thought uh, I am now going to read the Book of Isaiah. I read a chapter or two every day, and to be honest with you, I I didn't make it through. You know, after Isaiah 9, that was exciting. I remembered, you know, the familiar words. But then, oh, I, it was too... I didn't make it through, and I skipped back to the Gospels, stories of Jesus, which, which is good. Um, ultimately, though, maybe not in high school, but ultimately, I believe that all Christians should read God's Word in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation. We do not have to do this every year, does not have to be the Bible in a year, although that's a good plan, but we should read through the whole Bible. And when we do that, we come to certain passages that just by nature being human, we struggle through. And so uh, this evening, I would like to just look at a few of these passages. I will not read them all in entirety, but just look at a few of them and uh, make some observations about these passages Uh, So that perhaps when you come to them in uh, your Bible reading, uh, hopefully uh, this will help you. Now, I'm not going to make all the points that could be made made about these passages, but I'd like to make a few points along the way. The theme of this message is uh, despite sin, there is hope. Despite sin, there is hope. And, And God is faithful. God is holy and loving, and God is present. So first, let's think about this idea that God is faithful. So we have the tree. The idea is the family tree. Um, Genealogies are famous for being boring parts of Scripture. Are they not? You come to do a genealogy, kind of skip it, right? Skim over. Let's get to the exciting part. How many people have said, I'm going to read the book of Matthew... Skip. Genealogy. Now, Jesus. Okay, this is good. Uh, genealogies are very important. Do you? By the way, do you know your genealogy? Or how far back do you know your genealogy? So let me, let me practice on you. Okay. So my real name is Edward, not Mac. Okay? So I am Edward, son of Edward, who is here tonight. There, okay. So Edward, son of Edward, son of Alexander, son of Edward, son of Henry, son of... Heinrich Wiener, who came over from Germany in the early 1800s. There he is. Uh, This is kind of cool. Our family has a painting of Heinrich. Uh, His father passed away in Germany, and his older brother became in charge of the family. Heinrich didn't like his brother in charge. He heard about this country called America, and he came over uh, and uh, settled in Philadelphia, and... uh, eventually became a successful businessman in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, to think about uh, the family line, and many of you know your your family line, and uh, there are such great stories and and family legacy passed through the line. Now, when we think about the Bible, we'll go back to there. Uh, When we think about the Bible, very early on, uh, well, Genesis 3, uh, there is sin. And a sin brings hopelessness with it. It is awful, hopelessness and uh, damage to creation, a disease, damaged damaged genes. It brings it brings death, uh, a bleak outlook for humanity. But right there in Genesis three, as God is. Uh, Speaking about the consequences of sin to to Satan or the snake and the woman and then the man. Right there in Genesis 3, uh, this is what is said to Eve. And I will put enmity between you and the... I'm sorry, this is what he says to Satan or the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first prophecy of Jesus, a hope... Right here in right in the middle of the mess of sin. And how is hope going to come to the human race? It is not going to come from Superman, although he can provide, I guess, some hope from time to time. Uh, it's going to come from a woman giving giving birth. This is it is going to come from a genealogy. Hope is going to come from a family line. This begins right back in Genesis 3.15. And so we have the the line of Adam to Noah. Then we have the genealogy from Noah to Abraham. And then God says something amazing. Here is this granddad-aged man without offspring... So the old man, and God says, I am going to bless you. And a genealogy, in a sense, a family, is going to come from you. And not only that, I'm going to give you a land, and not only that, the whole world will be blessed through you. And as we know, Abraham's genealogy leads to Jesus. Now, one of the most boring of boring passages of genealogy is uh, Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. I'll just show you a little of this here. I mean, for nine chapters. I don't know if you've read through the Bible. You get to the first part of Chronicles. I mean, if you're doing a Bible in a year, it's, it's for several days you're stuck in, stuck in this. Okay? Uh, Book of Chronicles. Now, uh, just a few... Interesting things about Chronicles. Uh, Chronicles was written around 400 BC. This places the writing of Chronicles after Ezra and Nehemiah. So Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, Babylon conquered the southern kingdom of Israel. They were sent into exile, and then uh, providentially, God put it in Cyrus, in King Cyrus, the Persian king's heart, to let them return. And so Israelites uh, returned. Uh, to the promised land, resettled, and we have Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, after them, the book of Chronicles was written, written after 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2 Kings. Okay, so you have those historical books, and then comes Chronicles. And uh, when you think about it, Israel was almost completely destroyed. I mean, it was close. They, they wiped out Jerusalem, all the cities. I mean, it, exile. I mean, they were almost completely destroyed. Then they returned from, this, from exile. And, and they're thinking, God is at work. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Here we are as a people. Why were they still a people? Well, because of the family line, the genealogies. We are still... Israel, the people of Abraham, and we can trace ourselves to Abraham. God is still at work within us. Uh, We survived. David's line survived, the kingly line, and even the priestly line survived, and they built the temple. So the temple, in a sense, survived as well. Now, one cool thing. I did not discover this. I wish I could have, but anyway, neat thing about Chronicles and this genealogy, uh, after the first chapter, which talks about Adam to Abraham, then it focuses on Judah. In chapter 9, it focuses on Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin provide the bookends to this genealogy. Judah and Benjamin were part of the southern kingdom where David's line ruled. And as you read through Chronicles, you see it's very important for them to track the line of David, which we know leads to Jesus. So they're tracking the line of David. And so you have Judah and Benjamin as bookends. What is right in the middle of this boring genealogy? Levi. At the center. It's, it's kind of the spiritual center. Our God who forgives sin. Our God who forgives sin and has established priests that go before us into the presence of God in the temple, the spiritual center of the people of God that have reestablished themselves in the promised land. And as we look at this passage, well, these chapters, we see God's faithfulness in the genealogies. Think about it. All the other nations around Israel, packed in in the Middle East there, they are all gone, all gone. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Amorites, uh, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, all gone. Only one remained, providentially. And it was God's people with genealogies intact that shows God's faithfulness to his promises. Uh, one other uh, faithfulness thing in, in Israel are the uh, tribes of Israel and the division of the land, the division of the land. So one of the most boring passages of scripture, if you've ever gotten to it, is Joshua chapters 13 to 21, 13 to 21, every time I've gotten there I'm like, oh my, oh, I, I have a snippet for you, okay, just, just a snippet, uh, this is from Joshua 15. Verse 5. The northern boundary, talking, speaking of Judah, started from the Bay of the Sea of the Mouth of the Jordan, went up to beth Hoglah, continued north to Beth-Arabah, to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. The boundary then went up to Deborah, to the Valley of Achor, turned north to Gilgal, which faces the path of Edamon, uh, south of the gorge. It continued along to the waters of uh, En-Shemesh, and came out at En-Rogel. Okay, for Chapter after chapter, this is what you read. Picky, picky geography does not not exactly warm the heart of the modern reader. Uh, But what is going on here? God's promises center on salvation purposes. And God is faithful. So not only did he... Uh, Preserve his people. He rescued them, saved them from slavery and being slaves in Egypt, and brought them to the Promised Land. There were a bit of problems along the way, as you know, but eventually they get to the Promised Land, and what a beautiful gift. So, for instance, the tribe of Judah, Joshua says, All right, here is your land for your family. This is a gift from God because he is faithful to his promises. And so as you read through all of that picky geography, that was so important to the people of Israel to identify their spot, the kingdom of God, on planet Earth. And it involved a nation and families and people and plots of land. Therefore, they need it this information, and it shows God's faithfulness. One thing we need to remember is that God's view is long, and sometimes we have to wait. The people of Israel had to wait a long time for this land. And God has made a promise in the book of Revelation, one day Jesus will return, and there will be a new heaven, and there will be a new earth. And what's going to happen there? There's a promise for God's people to live a good life in a good land in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. God is faithful. Uh, Secondly, God is holy and also forgiving. Uh, No boring sermon is complete without a a shout-out to the book of Leviticus. I don't know what it is People often like to just, oh, Leviticus, you know, and they just use that as kind of like one of the boring uh, books of, of the Bible. And uh, it's true, Leviticus is kind of like a policy manual, isn't it? You know, it's, who reads that? At, at Timothy, we have, you know, a student handbook, you know, and students have to sign off on the student handbook, and it's page after page after page, and who reads? Them? But you have to have it, right? Now, Leviticus is way more important than the Timothy Handbook, but it's just a comparison. Okay. So uh, the book of Leviticus, it, it's tucked in between Exodus and the Mount Sinai and going to the Promised Land. has no stories, no, no history, a lot of ancient rules which eh, don't particularly apply to us anymore. Well, what's going on? Two things. First of all, uh, the word holy or holiness occurs more in Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. Obviously, holiness is a theme. How can a just God, I'm sorry, um, let me back up, holiness, for the people of Israel, this book was life. It was life. How were they going to live a good and flourishing life before a holy God in the promised land? They needed the book of Leviticus. And so as you read the book of Leviticus, and you might get to some parts that are like, what's going on here? Uh, The question I ask myself is this. How is a holy God calling me to, to live a holy life before him today? Uh, the other theme of Leviticus, I would say, well, another theme is forgiveness, is forgiveness. And how can a just God forgive sin? Well, God provides a way through a substitute sacrifice. Sin is costly. It must be paid for. And Leviticus, Leviticus shows us that a gracious God allows a substitute sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. In one sense, Leviticus is like a massive children's sermon that points to Jesus, although it would be hard for kids to get. But it is a beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness. And as as you read Leviticus, think Jesus and God's grace And how a holy God accepts sinful people and forgives our sin. Not to say sin doesn't matter. Sin must be paid for. And it is paid by the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who is both the sacrifice and the high priest to bring us before a holy God. And lastly, God is present God is present. Exodus is an interesting book. The beginning part is full of action, and so you could say interesting stories. Oh, gets my attention. And then all of a sudden, the last half of Exodus goes into picky detail about building the Tabernacle for chapter after chapter. Actually, chapters 25 to 40 is all about building the tabernacle. Uh, in the middle of that, you do get some stories. Moses on Mount Sinai, the golden calf story is is in there. But most of that is just it's just building the tabernacle. Uh, so for instance, Exodus 26. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame, make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, make two frames uh, for the corner at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top, and, and so forth. Four chapter after chapter. But then you get to Exodus 40. Exodus 40, 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard, and so, finally, Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For this long time, they're building and building and building, and there many people had responsibilities, but for most of the people, they just saw that they were building something in the middle of the camp, and then they finished, and the cloud of the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle, and I would say, worship descended upon the people of Israel. Hebrews chapter 9, but when Christ came as high priest, the good things that are now already here, uh, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. Jesus did not enter by means of blood of, of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. As you read through that tabernacle part you may want to skip over to Hebrews and read the passages in Hebrews about the tabernacle it kind of it links the two and you understand what the tabernacle is talking to, uh, teaching us about sin and the distance we are from God's presence because of sin it is teaching us about God's grace and we need a mediator to go before a holy God, and how Jesus is that mediator. And the book of Hebrews beautifully, just the, I just read one passage, helps to unpack uh, the tabernacle. So as you read those stories about the, cons- well, the instructions about the tabernacle, press on and consider uh, that God is, is working to be a God that is present with us. God is present. Now, uh, this is a, a schematic of the temple as described in Ezekiel. And this is what I read at the very beginning, the scripture passage. I'm ending with this, and here's why. It is this Bible passage where the inspiration of for this sermon uh, came from at first. Uh, I currently am working through uh, reading through the Bible. And uh, a couple months ago, I was in Ezekiel, reading Ezekiel 40 to 42. And I read from Ezekiel 40 at the beginning of the sermon. And to be honest with you, I I was struggling. I'm being honest. Bible teacher, I I was struggling. But I, I persevered, okay? Kept at it. But I was reading these passages just going... Oh, can we move on to something else? Nope, nope. Got to read everything. So I'm I'm, I'm reading through this all. And uh, I just read it out of sheer discipline. And this is God's word. And I need to do this. So I'm reading through it. And then I came to Ezekiel 43. So it was an early morning still dark out. It was before breakfast. It's near the end of the school year. I'm, I'm, I'm just struggling through Ezekiel. And then I came to Ezekiel 43. And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kebar River, and I fell face down. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. The Spirit brought me to the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And my friends, there in in that moment, in the quiet, during my personal devotions, I was just, let me say, it became a holy moment to consider that the creator of the universe entered into space and time, into our world, the glory of God. And who am I, who are we, that this great God should do this? Interestingly, this is a square, right? And in the the tabernacle, uh, the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. Not sure all of what that means, other than that, it is perfect dimensions. But it is also dimensions. So that this perfect, holy God enters into space, the glory of God. And I was overwhelmed with God's goodness and His grace and His glory. Verse 7, Son of Man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name. And through Jesus Christ, we enter into the holy of holies, the glory of the presence of God. And not only that, Through Jesus, we are called the church and us as individuals, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so as I waded through those boring passages passages of Ezekiel that morning, and I came to this, this passage of splendor and glory, I grew in my appreciation for God's holiness the depth of my sin, the power of forgiveness, and then the call to live a holy life before God in an unholy world. And the perfection to me, this perfection of creating everything just right, you do not bargain with God you do not tell him what holiness is or isn't. God is holy. He defines holiness. And we are to submit to his holiness. I am, I am weak and I am not perfectly holy. But I want to tell you, more than ever, I don't want to live a holy life just because I should, but because I want to. And God communicated this to me through Ezekiel 43. Amen.